Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, Behavior-Based Safety, The Controversy Continues, sponsored by Cordy. My name is Joe Bush. I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health Magazine, and I will be moderating today's session. Thanks for joining us. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation, but first I want to go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we will conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply type it into the text box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible. But because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speakers. For basic troubleshooting information, click the Help button located on your screen. At the end of the webcast, you will be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. I will let you know more about that after the presentation. This webcast is archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speakers today will be Pamela Bobbitt, Director of Product Marketing and Channels at Cordy, and Judy Agnew, a recognized thought leader in behavior-based safety and safety leadership. Pamela Bobbitt is in charge of the expansion of Cordy's partner program and brings deep expertise in EHS processes and software to the role. Having trained as a chemist, Bobbitt spent more than 15 years as an EHS professional in the pharmaceutical, chemical, and automotive in industries. She has spent the last decade at EHS software vendors using her industry expertise to translate business requirements into successful software programs. Judy Agnew is Senior Vice President of Safety Solutions with Aubrey Daniels International and has more than 25 years of experience working with clients in a variety of industries. She is the author of three books, Removing Obstacles to Safety with Gail Snyder, Safe by Accident with Aubrey Daniels, and A Supervisor's Guide to Safety Leadership. Thanks to all of you for tuning in to this presentation. Pam and Judy, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Thank you, Joe. Uh, thank you, everybody, for attending today. So I just want to start out, hi, this is Pam. Thank you so much for everybody. I'm happy to be here with Judy today. As an EHS professional for many years, now I go to a lot of conferences, and I had really brought into having been at an automotive manufacturing facility, I embraced behavior-based safety and knowing the value that it can bring, helped other customers, um, you know, support their programs as they rolled it out. And about a year ago, I was attending a conference in London, and I was quite shocked to find that uh, one of the members a, uh, of a panel, who was a VP of EHS for a large global corporation, saying that he did not believe in behavior-based safety. I was like, wow, well, maybe I'm just naive, and I've never heard of this before. So who best? to reach out to you and, and discuss this with and, and ask questions than Judy. So today uh, we're going to talk about 
why there seems to be a uh, disconnect or, you know, a, a pro and a con, you know, two sides of the, of the story here for behavior-based safety, um, including the conference here that I'm in, in, in uh, Lisbon, Portugal, had a global conference with 300 senior level uh, EHS professionals. And we talked about this a lot in some of the sessions today. So first, we, before I hand it over to Judy, I want to ask of all of the, you that are on the call today, the webinar today, are you currently utilizing any type of behavior-based safety within your organization? So we just kind of get an idea of, you know, who is, um, and then we can help tailor some of the, the conversations. And it also lets me know, too, because, again, I, um, being a true believer in behavior-based safety, seem to be a little bit um, set back by, uh, for those who, who, who don't um, see or, or haven't put in uh, these programs. So I'll give a little bit more time. We've got uh, people still answering a little bit over 50% uh, now of the audience. I'll give you just a couple more seconds uh, to give you time to uh, answer the question here. All right, let's see from our audience today. Oh, it's about a 50-50 split, just a little bit above, but 55% uh, of you are utilizing behavior-based safety programs right now. All right, so Judy, I'm going to hand it over to you. So let's talk about it, um, you know, what it is and how we, uh, where this controversy is coming from. Okay, well, great. Thanks, Pam. Um, I thought the best place to start with this conversation is really to define what behavior-based safety is. Because behavior-based safety uh, has been so popular for the last 25 years, it has really come to mean a wide range of different programs, and I think that's partly where some of the controversy comes from. There are, unfortunately, too many things that have been called behavior-based safety that really are not behavior-based safety. So let's start with a definition and then proceed from there to talk about what it is, what it isn't, and how to use it most effectively. So if you look up behavior-based safety on Wikipedia, there's actually several components of the definition, and I'll go through them quickly, but the, the one that I like the most is the first one. It's the application of the science of behavior to safety problems. And that's really what it is. So behavior-based safety should always be based on the science of behavior, also known as applied behavior analysis. Some of the other pieces of the definition in Wikipedia is that it's a process that creates a partnership between management and employees. Too often I've seen behavior-based safety programs that are all about the front line and there's not a lot of conversation or partnership going on. And that's really not the intention. That's not the way it should be. Behavior-based safety focuses on what people do, and I just want to stop there. That, that's really what it's about. This is about behavior. And if you think about safety and you think about what it takes to create the safest possible work environment, we're talking about behavior, not just the behavior of frontline employees, but we're talking about the behavior of managers, executives, supervisors, engineers, we all have a role to play. We all have things we need to do and do well to create a safe workplace. And that's really what behavior-based safety is about, is how do we create an environment 
where we get everybody to do the things they need to do to create a safe workplace. Um, it should involve everybody. Again, early on, BBS was very much focused on the front line, and, and for good reason. I think the front line had been left out of safety too much, and it was helpful and very important to get the front line more engaged and get people doing observations and providing each other with feedback. But we don't, certainly don't want to leave out um, the executives and leave, leave out supervisors and managers. A again, everybody has a role to play, and, and we've really got to include everybody. Um, the last piece is that if you understand behavior, you understand that behavior happens within an organizational system. And so behavior change is not just about doing observations and giving feedback. It's also about looking at those organizational systems to understand how they're influencing behavior. What are our management systems doing? What are our incentive systems doing? What are our pay and promotion systems doing to influence safe or at-risk behavior? So a good BBS process should look at those systems and make adjustments to the systems in addition to any kind of increase in feedback and, um, and observations. So with that as a definition, I want to talk a little bit about um, the different methodologies. So behavior-based safety shows up in many different ways. There are different systems that, that various organizations use. Um, I don't know why the slides are going backwards, but sorry about that. Um, so. If we look at the different methodologies, some of them have peer-to-peer -peer observation systems alone. And that's really what we think of when we think of behavior-based safety, is peers observing each other and giving each other feedback. That's kind of at the heart of, um, of behavior-based safety. But some systems have supervisors doing observations as well. Uh, some systems have a one long list of behaviors for the entire site, so everybody uses the same checklist. Other systems have targeted behaviors. Each department or each function might have their own smaller list of behaviors that they use to do observations. Um, some systems have a few people doing observations. Some systems invite everybody to do observations. Uh, some systems collect data across an entire site and pool that data together. Others use data by function or by department and provide feedback by department. All of those methodologies can work, and there's a tremendous amount of data to suggest that a behavior-based safety system that's, that's really founded on the science of behavior, regardless of any of these variables on this slide, it can be very, very effective. I want to talk about what makes any of the system, whatever, whatever process you use, uh, what you need to do to make a system most effective. And it really is looking at what the science tells us about how best to influence behavior. I'm guessing that um, everybody on this call is familiar with the ABC model, and especially those of you, of course, that are doing behavior-based safety. But for those who, who might not be familiar, let me give you a quick overview. The ABC model is basically the foundation of the science of behavior. It tells us there are two things that influence our behavior. 
Antecedent is anything that comes before behavior that prompts us to do something. And on the other end are consequences. And a consequence is anything, good or bad, that influences behavior. So antecedents are things like training, signs, slogans, procedures, policies. And when you think about safety, we have a lot of stuff that falls into that category of antecedents. There are a lot of things we do around safety that are antecedents. They're designed to prompt people to engage in safe behavior on the job. Where we have historically not been as good is on the consequence end. And unfortunately, too often the consequences we've used in safety have been largely negative, where we stop and talk to people when they're engaging in at-risk behavior. We correct them. We talk to them uh, when they've had an incident. Uh, there may be some discipline or some, um, some sort of a, a punishment involved. What we need to do and what the science tells us is we need to add in more consequences, but not negative ones. We need to add in more positive ones, and I'll talk about that in a moment. So the ABC model basically tells us that consequences have the biggest impact on our behavior, not antecedents. Now, we still need antecedents. Antecedents are necessary, but they're not sufficient for behavior change. So how does a good BBS system address that? By increasing the amount of feedback and reinforcement that we provide people through those safety observations. So in a typical system, peers would be observing each other, and their job at the end of that observation is to provide some feedback and some consequences, ideally positive ones, for the behaviors they've observed. Second thing is that we know from the science is that the more immediate a consequence is, the more powerful it is, and the more certain a consequence is, the more powerful it is. So again, if you look historically at what we've done in safety, we have these incentive systems, for example, or we have celebrations that where we say at the end of the year, if we do everything right, we're going to have a celebration. Well, the end of the year is too far in the future and it's too uncertain to be as effective as we want it to be. So part of what BBS is designed to do is to say, look, we need to build in more immediate, more certain consequences, more of the day-to-day -day kinds of consequences uh, and that's really going to drive behavior um, better and faster. So that notion of having people going out and doing observations and giving daily feedback uh, is a huge part of what makes BBS effective. The third piece is that we know from the science that positive consequences are the most efficient and effective. If we use a lot of positive reinforcement where we have a heavy focus on catching people doing it the right way instead of catching people doing it the wrong way, then we're going to create a lot more engagement. We're going to have much better conversations about safety. Because if you only talk to people about safety when they're doing something wrong, that starts to build resentment. I mean, people are doing the right things most of the time. So part of what we've tried to do with behavior-based safety is to say, let's recognize what people are doing well. And yes, of course, we need to talk to them about the things they're not doing the right way and help correct that. But if the vast majority of times people are doing things right, then let's talk to them about that as well. And let's 
Let's ensure that they feel good about the things they do well, and that's going to encourage them to be more willing to be involved in observations, to be more willing to do observations themselves, and to have better meaningful conversations around safety. We know that negative consequences are the most common by default. So if you let people just do what they do naturally, most people will manage by exception. They will go out and do observations and they'll look for at-risk behavior and then they'll comment on that. And so we know we need to really encourage people to say, look, look we need to focus on what people are doing well, not just what they're doing wrong. And so a behavior-based safety system helps build in some accountability for using more positive reinforcement, for using more positive strategies to influence behavior. And, and so a good BBS system should really hit all these components and do them well. And when they do that, they tend to be very, very effective. I want to spend some time on some of the common objections to behavior-based safety. And these are the things you hear, like Pam is probably hearing at the conference, um, that, that people say are the problems with it and why we should not use behavior-based safety. The first one is that BBS blames the worker. And this, this objection is as old as behavior-based safety itself. Uh, so where does it come from? It comes from a, a statement that was repeated over and over and again, that quote on the first bullet there, that 80% of incidents are the result of unsafe acts. That statement is misleading. Uh, it's misleading in the sense that it seems to suggest, at least people read into it, that it has nothing to do with hazards, that it's all about behavior. And it also seems to suggest that it's therefore the worker's fault. And so sometimes you'll hear people say, well, if we've trained people in safe procedures and we've given them all the tools that they need and we have meetings and discuss it and they still do something at risk, then that's their fault. What I will tell you is that is not at all what the science of behavior would tell you you should do. In fact, BBS actually eliminates blame because it helps us understand the real causes of behavior. If we have people that are normally good workers who do their job well, who work safely the majority of time, but occasionally do an at-risk behavior, occasionally take a safety shortcut, the question we should be asking is why? Why would a good person do that? And the answer is that good person is in a bad system. They're in a system that's actually encouraging people to do the wrong things. And so BBS helps us look at that, understand behavior, understand what role management might be playing in, in inadvertently encouraging at-risk behavior, understanding what other organizational systems might be encouraging at-risk behavior. So it's not at all about blaming the worker. It's very much about problem solving and understanding why a good worker might make an at-risk choice and helping them make better choices consistently. Another objection to behavior-based safety is that BBS results in under-reporting because it includes incentives for not having accidents. This is absolutely false. Um, there is nothing in the science of behavior that would suggest incentives for not having accidents are a good idea. In fact, the science predicts that if you put an incentive in place for not having accidents, you will get under-reporting. 
Uh, we know that people, to get to that incentive, if in particular if it's a big incentive, people will sometimes hide accidents in order to get that incentive. So behavior-based safety would predict that that's going to be a problem. And in fact, I would suggest that behavior-based safety has really helped shine a light on the dangers of those kinds of incentives. So if you hear people saying that BBS is about incentives, that's not true, that's not BBS. What BBS is about is about reinforcing behavior, reinforcing the preventative behaviors, the things that we need to do to prevent incidents, not about reinforcing the lack of accidents. Very, very different message. Another objection. BBS shifts company focus and resources away from hazards and focuses exclusively on employee behavior. Uh, this may have happened in some BBS systems. It's certainly not promoted by anyone that I know that does good BBS. Um, again, could it have been misused at some organizations? I'm sure that is true. Uh, I, I think anyone who really understands behavior-based safety and understands the science would say that it is not a replacement for anything else an organization is doing, and most particularly hazard remediation. Uh, you know, clearly we want to make sure that all hazards are identified and addressed in an organization. That's a huge part of safety. Uh, and it, it is, it should be going, it should work in conjunction with any behavior changes that we might be making. My experience around this is that the more people do behavior-based safety observations, the more hazards they see and the more hazards they report, and therefore the more hazards get addressed. Uh, and I have seen this over and over and over again in my 25 years of doing this, where there are hazards that have probably been there for years, but because people are now out and they're looking more and they're talking about safety on a daily basis, they're starting to see some of this stuff sort of through fresh eyes. So uh, again, I would suggest BBS has actually the opposite effect. And, and a good BBS system should encourage and support hazard rec recognition and remediation. And most of them would have a component where they're asking people to not just look at behaviors, but also to look for hazards. Another objection to behavior-based safety is that it ignores the hierarchy of controls. And so the suggestion here is that um, behavior-based safety is all about let's just change behavior, let's not bother trying to eliminate the hazards or substitute or use engineering controls. And again, uh, th this is just completely false. A good BBS system will work in conjunction with other kinds of work you're doing to eliminate and substitute and do the engineering controls. And again, in my experience, Behavioral observations often lead to ideas around ways to eliminate or better engineering controls. So it actually feeds the higher end of the hierarchy of controls as opposed to ignoring the hierarchy of controls. The next objection, and, and this is the one that I hear from people that are doing behavior-based safety and since um, over 50% of you are engaged in some behavior-based safety. You may, you may have some of this problem going on in your organization. And that's what people say, we have to hound our people to do observations. So we just have to stay on them all the time. We can't get enough observations. 
And often along with that, they'll say, people just don't see the value in behavior-based safety. So let me talk about that. What I see, and, and I have the opportunity not only to go into organizations and implement behavior-based safety, but we are often also called into organizations to do safety leadership work, safety culture work, and in the organization is an existing behavior-based safety system that we have an opportunity to, to look at. And sometimes we're asked to come in because somebody's behavior-based safety system is not working the way they want. So, so we have the benefit of seeing a lot of different behavior-based safety systems. And I would tell you that too many of those systems involve long observations that take a long time to do. So if your observation process requires that someone leaves their work and has to go somewhere and do an observation that takes 20, 30, 40 minutes, you are going to struggle to get people to do observations. They don't want to stop working and go do observations uh, for a long period of time. They've got other things they've got to do. I think most of us are busier than we, than we want to be. So that is going to continue to cause a problem. When people don't want to do observations, it means you have less data and less feedback and reinforcement. And when you have less feedback and reinforcement, behavior changes more slowly. And when behavior changes more slowly, people think it isn't working. I want you all to think about a sports analogy. If you've got kids that play sports or maybe you're playing sports, imagine if a coach said to your kids, okay, guys, I'm going to give you guys feedback once a month on how you're doing. And by the way, I use once a month because a lot of the behavior-based safety systems that, that um, clients come to us and, and con have concerns about, I'll ask them, well, how often are people observed? How often would the average person in your organization have a behavior-based safety observation done? And it is not uncommon for people to say, oh, about, about once a month. Let's think about that. Again, the sports analogy, if, if a coach says, I'm going to give you feedback once a month, how long is it going to take for that kid or that adult to get better at that sport? The answer is a very long time. What we know from the science and what we all know from our experience is the more frequently we get feedback and reinforcement, the faster our behavior changes. So if your behavior-based safety system is is takes a long time, it's going to lead to slow behavior change, which is going to lead to people saying, ah, this doesn't work. After, you know, six months, people say, I don't see any change in behavior. I don't see any reduction in incidents. This BBS stuff just doesn't work. It's not that BBS doesn't work. It's that you're not using it properly. It's that you are failing to recognize what the science tells us about what an effective system looks like. So some tips on this. Focus on a few relevant behaviors at a time and do more frequent observations. If your observation takes half an hour to do, look at that list and say, what do we really need to focus on? Or let's focus on these ones for now, and we'll come back to the other ones later. Anything you can do to make that observation process shorter is going to mean people will do more observations, which means people are going to get more feedback, which means the behavior is going to change faster. The other thing I see in a lot of BBS systems is that the, the data from observations is collected, and then somebody puts it into a database 
and they never share that data back with the group. People want to see, is it having an impact? If I'm going to take time to do observations or I'm going to allow people to observe me, I want to know that it's making a difference. So be sure that you share those improvements back with the group. I, I can't tell you how many times I see that where it just goes into a black hole and no one really knows whether it's having an impact or not. So let me give you some additional tips for designing a behavior-based safety system that is going to be most effective and really work at um, improving behaviors. The first one is to identify critical behaviors for workers and for management. And my suggestion here is, is start at the front line. What are the things you need your frontline workers to do differently? Look at your data. What are your near miss or your incident data? What is that telling you about the types of um, behaviors that could prevent those types of injuries? If you're having a lot of hand and finger injuries or a lot of near misses around um, uh, uh, back injuries or whatever it is, use those data to, to start to identify what are the critical behaviors. I also would suggest to you, you need to not just focus on behaviors related to the types of incidents or near misses you're having, but also what are the things that people need to do differently to prevent the very serious incidents and fatalities, so the, the high severity kinds of incidents. And those don't always show up, as you know. They don't always show up in your data. But look at those carefully, too. What are the things that people really must do consistently to prevent a serious injury or fatality? And a good BBS system should include both of those behaviors for frontline workers. Once you've identified what you need your frontline workers to do, a really important question to ask is, so what then should our supervisors do? What's the role of the supervisor in our BBS system? Are they going to do observations as well? If they're not going to do observations, how can they support the people that are doing the observations? We've got to figure out what, what those supervisors need to do and be very, very clear about it. I would suggest that too often we tell our supervisors vague things like, well, you just need to support the process. Well, what does that mean? What, what should the supervisor do today? to support the BBS process. So get really specific about what you need on the part of your supervisors. And then, going up from there, if you know what you want your supervisors to do, what, what do you want your managers to do? What should they do to support the supervisors? And so on up the chain, so that it's clear that we're pinpointing behaviors for not just the hourly frontline workforce, but for everybody in the chain of command, so that everybody understands the role that they're to play and, and how to play that role as best they possibly can. Um, the second one, focus on behaviors that are going to have the biggest impact. Um, and, and again, you should use data for doing that, ideally, uh, if you are like many organizations and you don't have a lot of incidents and maybe your near-miss reporting system isn't working as well as you <laughs> would like, um, you can uh, certainly do observations and see what kinds of things people tend to be uh, inconsistent about. You can look at uh, other kinds of industry data that will help um, suggest. And you can also ask people, where are they tempted to 
to take risks? Where might they be, um, you know, uh, uh, struggling to do things the right way? Um, one of the things that I've seen that is not uh, helpful in BBS systems is where organizations pick behaviors to observe that are simply easy to observe. So they'll often have a lot of PPE on their observation lists, for example. And while PPE may be very important, uh, I've, I've worked in organizations where they just have all kinds of observations on PPE, but really the things that are most likely to hurt their people are, are not related to pe wearing PPE. So, so be sure that you're really focusing on the stuff that matters. Um, because if you don't do that and you're asking people to do observations on things that are not as important, then you're just undermining your BBS system. The next one is to ensure frequent observation of those critical behaviors. So the more we get people observing, the more we build in feedback and consequences. Uh, now, if you can get people to do short observations that only take a few minutes, then people are more likely to be able to do them on a daily basis or at least a weekly basis. And don't be shy about using self-observation. Um, I think sometimes people roll their eyes and think, self-observation, that's ridiculous. Everyone would just say that they're doing everything safely. Uh, the only reason people would lie uh, on a self-observation scorecard is if well, one of two things. Either there's some big incentive for getting a good score on your scorecard, which there should never be in a BBS system, or if there's fear, fear of punishment, fear that if I record that I've done something at risk, I'm somehow going to get in trouble for doing that. So a good BBS system eliminates those two, and if you've got an environment where people are engaging in BBS, they see it as valuable, then self-observation can be a great part of that, and it helps uh, increase the amount of observation and it allows people to talk about how they're working to change their own behavior, not just working to help each other change behavior. The next one is to ensure that frequent feedback and reinforcement. Again, the more observations we have going on, the more opportunities for feedback and reinforcement. So getting that observation process down to where it's something that is, is pretty easy for people to do and fairly quick for people to do will help ensure that there's more feedback and reinforcement. And that feedback and reinforcement happens after an observation, but it also should happen when we gather the data across across people, across groups, where we're coming back and saying, hey, guys, we were at 75% last week, and now we're at 80% safe. Uh, so we're letting people see the impact of uh, their efforts. Using the science to do collaborative problem solving. So good BBS eliminates blame. As I said earlier, good BBS uh, allows people and gives people tools to say, okay, if there's at-risk behavior happening, there are reasons for that. People don't behave in at-risk ways because they, don't, they just don't care. I mean, sometimes people do, but the, the vast majority of the time when you look at incident investigations or you talk to people about at-risk behavior, they're often doing at-risk behavior to try to do a better job. They're trying to get the product out the door. They're trying to do something in, in a way that um, is, is of higher quality, and that's leading them to be tempted to do things in unsafe ways. 
So very often people are doing at-risk behaviors because they're trying to do the right thing. So let's understand that and let's understand what role management plays in encouraging that. So if we have supervisors who talk about uh, the importance of getting the product out the door and how behind we are today and we've got to really get this stuff done today and, oh, by the way, have a safe day, well, that's part of the problem. So, and again, I wouldn't blame the supervisor either. There's no reason to blame the worker or blame the supervisor. Let's just understand that that's part of the problem and let's make some adjustments. Let's change what the supervisor says during those startup meetings uh, to, to avoid sending the wrong message. So it really is about sitting down and saying, what are the things that are driving at-risk behavior at any level of the organization, and what do we all need to do differently to encourage safe behavior? Any good BBS system needs to include a link to hazard identification and remediation. So if you've got a process whereby which people are supposed to report hazards, make sure there's a linkage between your BBS system and that system. If you don't have that in place, use your BBS system to do that. So the scorecards that we used, particularly in the early days when I first started doing this 25 years ago, most organizations didn't have formal hazard identification systems. So we just, from the beginning, included a few behaviors and a, a spot on the scorecard to say, what hazards do you see? Write them down, turn them in, and we would create a process whereby supervisors would address the hazards and, and report back. And so we've got both of those things going on because, again, when we've got people out doing observations, they can be looking for hazards, they can be looking for um, engineering solutions as well as behaviors. And the last one is to ensure that your process is having the intended impact, and if it isn't, adjust it. I see too many people who are sort of blindly following some BBS recipe where they're just doing observations, turning in the scorecards, putting it in a database, and nobody stops and looks at it and says, is this having an impact? Are we changing the right behaviors? Are those behaviors leading to a reduction in injuries, a reduction in near misses? Um, and if it's not, then you need to change what you're doing. There's, there's adjustments that you can make. And if you use the science of behavior as your guide, that's your foundation, that's what you always go back to, then any adjustments you make are only going to make your process better. But, but don't just keep following a process that isn't working for you. Make some adjustments. A well-designed BBS process that's really based on the science of behavior can be a critical component of a, of a safety management system. It's, it's not a replacement for anything, as I said, um, but it is a good part of a safety management system. Safety is about behavior. Safety is about ensuring people do the right things on the job. So we have to have a process to help people do the right thing. And if we don't, we end up relying on antecedents, signs and slogans and meetings. We end up relying on nagging people to do the right thing. And we too often end up punishing people when they don't do the right thing. So instead, let's be proactive. Let's build in, based on the science, let's build in a way to help people make the safe choices on the job. Now, uh, 
one of the things that um, Pam mentioned, and this is this is my last slide, and then we'll we'll do a few more things, and then we'll open it up for questions. But you know, as, as Pam mentioned, and I've had this experience recently too. There, there's a, an awful lot of anti-BBS conversation going on out there, and and it's really disturbing to me as someone who's I have a PhD in the science of behavior, and I've been doing behavior-based safety for so long, and I've seen it be so powerful. It's very disturbing to me to hear people say, oh, it doesn't work, it's a bunch of bunk, or um, we've got the next best thing, BBS is dead, here's what you all need to be doing now. Let me say this. Any process that helps you influence behavior is based on the science of behavior. And since BBS, remember the first definition I had of BBS, the first definition you see in Wikipedia, BBS is the use of the science of behavior to, to change behavior in the workplace around safety. So BBS is not dead. The science is not dead. The science of behavior works regardless. Just like the laws of physics work, the laws of behavior work. There are different ways to do it. There are all kinds of things that people have done over the last 20 years that are not really BBS, but have been called BBS, that are not effective. That's absolutely happened. But to say that BBS doesn't work, to say that it's dead, is to essentially say that the science is dead. And, and, that, and that's just, it's ridiculous. Could you do something other than the traditional peer observation um, BBS? A absolutely. Basically, anything you do that identifies critical behaviors and builds in frequent feedback and reinforcement to drive those behaviors, to make sure those behaviors happen, is going to be helpful and effective. We do a lot of safety leadership work where it's all focused on leaders, some things leaders need to do differently to improve safety. Um, there's lots of different things you could do. It doesn't have to take the form of what sort of most people think of as traditional BBS. The key is not the process. It's the principles that the process is based on. The science helps us make good choices. Um, it helps us, excuse me, uh, help other people make consistent, safe choices. And if we stay true to that science, we're going to be effective. So with that, let me turn it over back to Pam uh, to... Yeah, and I just want to stay on this for just a second, uh, Judy, because I know um, this is great and talking about the alternatives where people don't realize some of these new um, ways, like today, uh, engaging conversation around mindfulness and nudge theory, right? So, mm -hmm. and that just... If you think about that, you know, mindfulness is really just that self-assessment that you were talking about, right? Mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. taking a moment and, and sitting there and thinking, observe, and then, you know, what are you going to do? So I think some people think don't see that correlation, and I think yeah. maybe that's where some of it is coming in. Um, yeah. You know, nudge theory, which we've talked about before, um, I heard about it. Uh, a couple of years ago, and it continues to be, uh, I only hear about it for some reason in Europe. I'm sure some people in, in North America are using it as well. But that's all based off of human behavior, like yep. doing, you know, setting up your processes, you know, to basically take our, you know, inherent 
uh, behavior into account. Like today, it was pretty interesting that they talked about the, uh, if any of you are in Chicago, right, the, the road Lakeshore Drive, of how they designed it to automatically, instinctively make our bodies slow down around the curves just from the design. So if you think about that, there's so many ways that, um, that we are using the behavior and, and yeah. adjusting that, like painting lines, like speed bumps, um, not putting them there, but painting them, like people automatically go, oh, got to slow down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and, you know, nudge theory, you know, as I, as I look at it, it, it's really about making it easy for people to do the right thing. And, and so in our terminology, it's, it's about making sure that we're not, we're not building in negative consequences when we want people to do things. Uh, and BBS is all about that. It's about identifying what we make it so hard sometimes for people to do the right thing. So let's look at it and let's understand what makes it easy for people to do the right thing. And the other thing nudge theory is all about is using positive strategies. And, and that's very much in line with, with what we've talked about today. Yeah, and I think one of the things, too, that I've seen as well, and uh, it's changing the observation to a conversation, right? Yeah. Still observing, but putting that human element into it where you're, instead of just standing with a checklist and writing things down, you're having that conversation because then maybe you are able to, some of the things that you talked about, make a strong um, program, you're able yeah. to talk one-on-one -on -one with that line worker, and they can say, hey, did you see this? Let me show you something, right? And that conversation actually gives you that better observation to address it. Absolutely. And that's where good observations lead to uh, engineering redesign or discussions about hazards because you're talking. Instead of going up to someone saying, hey, you're doing it wrong, do it this way, you're saying, now I noticed you did it this way. Tell me why. What's going on? And then the person says, well, I have to do it this way. You don't realize, but, I, you know, they put the guard over here, but I can't possibly use that guard because I have to do it this way. And now you've got a meaningful conversation that's going to lead to true change. So let's talk about uh, technology because, again, we have – there's so much that I think um, – talk about, about the digital transformation. That's really how you get the buy-in from that – senior levels talking about digital transformation is just using technology, right? So the technology can support these programs, one, giving visibility, right? So having that um, true visibility of, you know, the information coming in, reporting coming out of it, uh, you know, closing that feedback loop. So one of the key things that you talk about is making sure that you're not losing ground, right, or, you know, hounding the employee, uh, that you're letting them see that what they're doing actually has impact. So, for instance, you know, uh, not only if they're doing, say, you know, they're putting in um, an observation or information and knowing, getting an, you know, an email back or an indication back that, hey, by the way, this led to this corrective action, this corrective action was closed, here's what was done, makes them feel part, part of that process. And when we talk about that um, conversation versus observation, being able for them to give immediate feedback based off of their conversation. So if the 
you know, management team or the team lead or whoever's conducting that conversation, leading that conversation, they're going to write down their report, right? But getting, having that, you know, feedback too from the employee to say, well, how was that experience for you? You know, how much of the conversation did you talk versus the person interviewing you, right? Mm -hmm. So it gives feedback both to the employee and making them feel part of it, but also back to the person conducting the interview. So if they're spending a lot of time talking to the employee and not with the employee, you can get that immediate feedback and make those adjustments as you talked about, right? And then it yeah. makes the links. So with, with technology, it's going to make those links for you at that impact. So how many observations did we do? What kind of, um, you know, action plans related to that? How and then seeing that incident rate in with now with analytics and reporting, you can make those correlations easier, that different information to really kind of give you that impact to your safety culture, which I think is what we all want from um, a behavior-based safety program. Absolutely. So to me, all of this comes into, you know, bringing in what we call operational excellence. So tying in your programs with technology so that you're able to easily do the administration of it, do that reporting, give feedback, not only to every person in the process from the line worker all the way up to the C-level, then everybody feels part of that, um, linking that together into um, operational excellence. So with that, I think I'm going to go to the last poll question of today before we open it up for Q&A. Um, but Judy talked about, you know, that a well-designed behavior-based process is based on the science of behavior, and it can be a critical component of a robust safety management program, um, it, improving your safety culture. Do you agree? So we just kind of want to get an idea uh, from everyone on the line uh, if, you know, how you agree. We know that about 55% of you were already um, bringing in behavior-based safety programs. Now we want to make sure, you know, of those, do you really think that that, um, do you agree with that and, and what we talked about today, that if you, it's well-designed, um, you're taking in consideration these things, that it can be a critical component of your safety management program? I'll give you just a minute to think about that. All right, well, let's see the results. Wow, I think, uh, Judy, I think it makes me happy to see that. I hope that yeah, it, um, that's great. makes you that's happy great. as well. That's fantastic. Um, so with that, I think we will uh, go over to the Q&A. Excellent. Great job, Pam and Judy. Thanks for your insights and expertise. Before we start the q and I want to remind everyone of the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. Surveys should be appearing on your screen. Your input is important because it will help us improve future webcasts. If you do not see the evaluation survey on your screen, please turn off your pop-up blocker. You may also access the survey by clicking the survey button near the lower right part of your screen. Now, let's get to some questions. You say BBS should include identifying hazards also so should that be part of the observation scorecard? Uh, you know, if, if I think it should be. If there isn't 
if an organization doesn't have some other mechanism for doing that, um, many do, but I always like to have it on the BBS scorecard regardless because, again, when people are out and doing those observations and having those conversations, inevitably uh, hazard conversations come up. So I like, I like to see it right on the scorecard. How can you avoid the sense of blame for at-risk behavior when part of BBS is to talk to people when they are observed doing something at risk? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, because, of course, when we are observing, we are going to see some people doing at-risk behaviors, and we need to talk to them about it. And I think it really goes back to what Pam said. It's about a conversation. It's not about saying, hey, gotcha, you're doing it wrong, you need to change what you're doing, but it's about asking questions. Is there something that I see you doing it this way? Uh, I'm sure you know that's you know, making sure they, they do know the right way to do it, but then saying, what, what is it that you know, encourages you to do it the wrong way? Is there something we can change about the design or about what you know, the pressures that you're under? So it, it really is about asking questions so that even when people are being talked to because they're doing something at risk, it feels like a problem-solving conversation, not a blaming conversation. And I always tell people, look, if one person is doing something in an at-risk way, chances are pretty good other people are doing it as well. So that's another thing you can coach your observers to say is, look, I want to know why you're doing it this way because I bet you're not the only one. So please help, help me understand so we can make it better for everybody. What is the role of leaders in BBS? Um, that's going to depend on the the process. Uh, you know, as I said earlier, too often there is no role for leaders or the role is very vague, like they're just supposed to support the process. Um, certainly if you've got a peer observation system, then one of the roles of leaders should be to reinforce the people for doing observations, uh, to look at the data and have conversations about it to participate in the problem solving. Um, certainly be careful with how they react to incidents. So there's lots of different things that, that leaders can do, and it is going to depend to some extent on what kind of a BBS process you've got, who's doing observations, what the, what the observation process looks like, that sort of thing. But the, you know, my advice is be very, very pinpointed about what you want your leaders to do, and that's going to increase the probability that they're, they're going to do those things. How can you get frontline workers engaged in BBS if they are skeptical or jaded? Yeah, that's, a, that's another good question because, uh, again, as we've been talking about today, there is a lot of skepticism around BBS. I mean, there always was. Um, in, in the early days, we always had to convince the frontline this wasn't about policing, it wasn't about catching people doing it wrong. Um, I think if you, just, if you just talk to people about the fact that we understand and we all do at-risk things, and there's reasons for that. There's things that are happening in the work environment that unfortunately encourage us sometimes to take those shortcuts. So BBS is not about blaming. BBS is about let's all work together to figure out what those things are. And you know, getting back to the nudge theory idea, let's make it as easy as possible for people to make safe choices. 
And if you talk about it that and way, I, if this is about helping, then you don't get that resistance. Sorry, Tom. Yeah, no, sorry. I was just uh, excited to jump in because I think one of the things that was discussed um, in the conference today that I've been a huge proponent of is um, personalizing it for the worker, right? So not only, mm. you know, for for those who have, you know, the skepticism, not only making them, you know, giving them that visibility to, to allow them to feel part of the process, but also making it personal to them. Like, okay, you know, understanding what they care about and then make that correlation to the things that are uh, what they care about. So one of the companies that um, talked about one of the examples they did today is uh, they would have um, at a shift, they would have the workers write down what matters to them most in life, right? Like what are the things they enjoy in life and what matters to them? And so if, uh, and then you get to know your peers that way. It's kind of a team building thing. But when you have those conversations, say, hey, you know, uh, one of it was like going to the theater with their with their child to say, you know, these are the things we do this so that we ensure that we know that uh, we're working and, you know, in a safe way that we're helping uh, eliminate or, or kind of, you know, put the barriers to the hazards so that you can go to the theater with your child. Right. So doing that personalizing element. Uh, really helps with the skepticism as well. Yeah, I agree. That's a great a great thing to do. It's an exercise that we build into some of our training too to just remind people because sometimes we forget it. It becomes all about rules and following rules, and we forget it's about human beings staying safe and being able to go home and hug their kids and play baseball or whatever they want to do. How do you prompt new supervisors to do effective BBS observations? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I think, you know, what I would say to a supervisor, especially a new one, is, you know, a big part of what you need to do as a supervisor is get to know your people. Uh, the more you know your people, the more you develop a relationship with the people that report to you, the, the more effective you're going to be as a supervisor in general, but certainly as a safety, a supervisor of safety. Um, so observations give you an opportunity to get to know people. Again, if you approach the observation as an opportunity to have a conversation with people and you use a lot of good questions, then you're going to learn about people and they're going to feel listened to and valued and that's going to help you build your relationships with those people. I think we've got to get people away from thinking observations are, are a policing mechanism. It's it's not. I like what Pam said. It's a conversation, and, and that's helpful to both parties. Okay, last question. In most cases, what is the most challenging aspect of BBS that receives pushback from employees and employers? Ah. Uh. I think probably time, the time it takes, is probably the number one pushback. And we've, we've talked about some of the other things, you know, fear of it being a policing system and that sort of thing, but people often are concerned about how much time it's going to take. And that's why in some of my tips I said, you know, do what you can to focus on the critical few. can't fix every behavior all at once. We don't start New Year's Eve by saying, here's my New Year's resolutions, there are 35 of them. You know, we, we, we can't change behavior, that many behaviors at one time. So 
So focusing on a few at a time minimizes the amount of time it takes to do the observations. It makes the conversation shorter but more targeted. And that, in my experience, that helps people get past their fear of how much time it's going to take. You know, I, I tell people, you should be able to do observations every day, and it shouldn't be more than a few minutes a day. And don't you have a few minutes a day to improve safety? And, of course, who could say no to that? Thank you, Pam and Judy. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded to our speakers. Once again, I hope you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey on your screen to give us your feedback. That ends today's Safety and Health webcast. I'd like to thank Pam Bobbitt and Judy Agnew, everyone at Cordy, and all of you who listened in. Thanks, and have a great day.